Father, we're grateful for the day. We thank you uh, for blue skies and sun again, the refreshing character of that for our life in this world. And we uh, pray that you will be with all who are suffering under these uh, shocking winter storms in the south and southwest. And Father, we pray you'd be with our areas. We look to getting nothing like that, um, and in many ways, nothing particularly unusual for us. But we pray, Father, that uh, you would watch over and care for us, and we pray tonight you bless our efforts in these studies, and we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to um, try and finish off discipline. And uh, just two points of recap for discipline. We argued that there are two senses of the word in play when we think about it in relationship to the church. One is discipline, just meaning the life of a disciple. All of the things, the disciplines that go into uh learning and loving and devotion and worship and uh, understanding the call to service, all of those things uh, from the ministry side of the church. And then the first discipline with respect to those things is self-discipline, where believers embrace uh, through the Spirit the word that's preached, giving them instructions as to how to live as disciples, and they discipline themselves and that that's an absolute prerequisite for then this narrower sense of discipline, meaning judicial correctives when someone has wandered uh, from the path. And if that uh, gets reversed, if the principal thing is other discipline, judicial correctives, pressure from the outside, uh, and little of self-discipline and maturity, uh, and, and direction, uh, then there's something seriously wrong in the life of the church. So it's sometimes said that if a church hasn't had any um, judicial cases, uh, that they must be neglecting discipline. But on the contrary, at least in the best interpretation of that, it means they're paying careful attention to discipline, self-discipline, they're maturing, they're growing, they're uh, forgiving one another, and, and so on. So it's not necessarily a bad sign. Well, um, the uh, judicial dis- discipline uh, follows the pattern that Christ himself set up. And Dr. Packard notes on page 221, the Westminster Confession's understanding of the five elements of why church censures are crucial. A censure is uh, some declaration uh, formally by the government of the church um, that uh, someone has erred in some way and um, the purposes pursued there are, one, for the reclaiming and gaining offending brethren, to win them back. Uh, Second, to deter others from like offenses. You see publicly that these things are really not consistent with life in the church. Third, for purging out that leaven which might infect the whole lump uh, so that uh, the body is preserved by cutting out the part that uh, is unwilling to um, live faithfully. Fourth, for the vindication of the honor of Christ and the profession of the gospel. 
It dishonors Christ when those who bear his name don't live faithfully according to the way that he set forth. And then fifth, for preventing the wrath of God, which might justly fall upon the church, uh, should they suffer his covenant and seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. Uh, those two words are crucial in understanding this. Notorious. It's, uh, it's publicly known and obstinate publicly known, and they are uh, unwilling to relent from the path uh, uh, in the lesser influences that might have brought them back. And Dr. Packer notes that there's a kind of uh, escalation uh, from uh, admonition to suspension from the Lord's Supper for a time, finally to excommunication, the person being put out of uh, the congregation and public sins are to be openly uh, corrected in the church's presence, as uh, Paul says in both 1 Timothy 5 and Galatians 11. Uh, Matthew 18 is the classic passage dealing with personal offenses. Um, and uh, you're to go to a brother, try and show him a fault. Uh, if he fails to see it, you're to take along some others who can help to persuade him of his fault. Uh, if he refuses to hear them, He's to be brought before the church, and of course there, uh, the church didn't mean the whole congregation in the New Testament period. It meant uh, the uh, elders of the church. And um, the uh, point is that these censures are not punishments. Dr. Packer puts it, they're not punishment for punishment's sake, but I, I don't think they're punishments at all. This isn't retributive just judgment or justice. Um the, uh, on the contrary, these are um, uh, uh, correctives. Um, they are intended not to wound, but to, as Dr. Packer puts it, uh, um, recover this sh strand sheep. Um, and um, it's important to note that Although all sins in the life of the believer um, are uh, liable to correction in some way or another, um, not all sins are liable to the judicial process. And that, too, is an absolutely critical distinction. Um, the, um, uh, the fundamental premise of the Christian life is that we're sinners saved by grace and that though we're redeemed, we're going to wrestle with sin our whole lives. So the way that we deal with sin is by helping one another, uh, correcting one another, challenging one another, forgiving one another. And that's an ongoing part of life. And that doesn't call for judicial intervention at all, formally. It's only when, uh, a person, and the language our tradition uses, is incorrigible and contumacious, uh, that something becomes an offense that can be censured by the church. Um, uh, incorrigible meaning to the rational eye, there is no hope for that person correcting their behavior. And, uh, and, and because they're unrepentant, they won't correct it. And in, uh, um, contumacious, that is, they're shaking their fist and saying, I, I don't care. Uh, this is the way I'm going to live, and uh, you leave me alone, and so on. 
So that finally, the only ground, uh, the only sin for which a person can be excommunicated is impenitence. And even there, again, the point is that um, all discipline, among Protestants at least, is hypothetical. It's saying if this is characteristic truly of your heart, um, then you can't be a believer and so you don't have a place in the church. But of course, the elders can't see whether it's truly the case. And what they're hoping for is this extreme measure will uh, shock a person, awaken genuine grace in their life, and that they'll be anxious to make things right and uh, be restored to the church. Well, all right. Uh, That's a a quick conclusion to discipline, but taking up some things that are uh, very important to that subject. Any questions on that from anyone? Chambers. Here's my question. Within the PCA, um, if a church is using church discipline in a not accurate way, how, how does someone go about seeking help if they're in a church? Because I, I have friends that have experienced this. Um, yes. How do they go about getting help? Well, um, in the PCA, uh, happily, we had a fairly... Um, well-developed formal process for discipline and um, the the, um, we have different we call them church courts we've got the local uh, elders that's the session Uh, we have the regional elders um, that's the presbytery and then we have the national church represented by elders that constitute the general assembly And those are both political units and judicial units. Uh, With respect to judicial matters, it's like an appeals court system. So that, um, and there are two basic forms of uh, uh, offense. One is when a court itself does something wrong. Somebody doesn't keep the rules properly. And that's Mm -hmm. called a complaint. And so if, if one of the elders at New Hope thought that the session had aired, uh, he could bring a complaint before the presbytery, and the presbytery would give a hearing to see if, whether there needed to be some correction. And if uh, he wasn't satisfied with the presbytery's judgment, he would have a right to take that up to the General Assembly. The other is when uh, discipline has taken place personally. And... Uh, there, if a person's been uh, tried and found guilty and they don't believe they're guilty or if they believe the court erred in some way in coming to that conclusion, they would have a right to appeal that to the presbytery. And um, because it's an appeals court, the presbytery doesn't retry the case. It simply looks at the records to see if uh, the alleged error is so, and it can reverse the lower court. If the person is not satisfied with the presbytery's judgment, again, he can uh, appeal it to the General Assembly. Um, That that was my question, because this particular individual took it to the presbytery, and then the presbytery just sent it back to the local church. Um, So you answered my question. Thanks. All right. Any other questions with respect to discipline? Dave, uh, 
This is Paul. Not so much a question, but just to the points you were just going down. Um, it does has always struck me based on your great teaching on this topic that it's one of the wonderful evidences of the biblical wisdom of, Pre of Presbyterianism, the whole way that godly discipline is implemented. Yeah, boy, I agree with that, Paul. I, I do think it's a token of the Lord's grace to us um, in his wisdom in the government that he's appointed, and uh, we see that wisdom practically uh, in the in the way it works. It's not it's not perfect because there there aren't any p perfect people who are part of the system, but the system itself is pretty good. All right, let me press on then. Um, tonight, as I said, we're taking up mission, spiritual gifts, and marriage, and I will have. A couple of minor dissents from what Dr. Packers argued in part of this, and so we'll um, have the opportunity to talk about that, but uh, nothing of any great moment. Um, so first mission, Christ sends his church into the world. The, our English word is from a Latin word that just means sending, and uh, this plays off of what Jesus said about himself. He was on a mission from the Father. And he said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Uh, uh, and so the church, uh, and Dr. Packer is wanting to say that the universal church, and therefore every local expression of the church and every Christian in it, is sent in the world to fulfill a definite and defined task. And he says that's a twofold task. First, it's the work of witness, disciple-making, and church planting. Um, and th this, uh, he takes it uh, to be, is the work of uh, the Word. Um, and um, the uh, first element in disciple-making, of course, is preaching the gospel. A person voluntarily is uh, brought to uh wanting to be a disciple and follow Jesus, and uh, then he's trained in what that amounts to. And when there are enough folks gathered in a particular place, um, they are to be united into a congregation, and uh, all the structures that are appointed in the New Testament are to be manifest in the li life of that local church. The second element that Dr. Packer identifies is that... Um, uh, Christians are called to practice deeds of mercy and compassion through neighbor love. Now, here's where I have a slight dissent, um, because I don't think Dr. Packer is entirely clear here. Um, Christians certainly have an obligation to practice deeds of mercy and compassion. Uh, and all of the texts that he cites throughout this uh, portion um, uh, have to do with individual Christians. But there have been some who thought that the church as an institution, the church as under its government, is an institution of general benevolence and has a, a mission to try and make the world a better place. And I think that's a mistaken view. I don't, uh, I don't think Dr. Packer holds it, but I don't think you would know that there's a distinction here to be made from the way he's written it. 
and to some degree, um, the uh, I, I think his use of our Lord as an illustration in, on two twenty four, the first full paragraph, uh, Jesus uh, healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he taught uh, the ignorant, and so on. Um, Jesus's work wasn't a work of general benevolence. There were all kinds of people who weren't healed, even in circumstances where one was healed and others who could have just as easily been healed, the man at the uh, pool of uh, Siloam and so on. Uh, So those healings had a different purpose. Uh, His feeding the hungry. He could have fed with the word all of Jerusalem. But it was very specific and it was tied to his ministry and it was an identifying mark that the king is present in the kingdom. It was an authenticating mark of the extraordinary character of Jesus. And um, so Jesus never had the calling of general benevolence in the world. And the, the church following Jesus doesn't have such a calling. So uh, to give you some examples of what I'm trying to say here, uh, Christians certainly would have an obligation to uh, help uh, where people didn't have work and to try and um, make it possible for there to be work for others to do and to be paid and make a living. But that doesn't mean that the church is to undertake commerce, to start a business, to um, have a jobs bank. Uh, These are all things that Christians would do as members of a community and with other benevolent persons. But it would not be the calling of the church. Um, Christians have the obligation to uh, help to protect uh, others, their neighbors, from uh, harm on the part of uh, miscreants. Um, But that doesn't mean the church has an obligation to start a police force or to um, raise an army. Um, um, So Dr. Packer's uh, point is very powerful here. When Christians live well in the world, full of kindness and self-sacrifice for their neighbors, That is a confirmation of the gospel that's proclaimed. It gives credibility to that gospel. And if Christians lived in any other way but that, it would undermine the gospel. But that doesn't mean that the same obligation belongs to the church as an institution of general benevolence. And in fact, I think the church is forbidden uh, from that kind of thing. And whenever the church has tried to do it historically, it end, the latter ends up driving out the former. That is to say that the calling of general benevolence is, is so time-consuming, so costly, um, the, um, that it, it drives out the preaching of the gospel and faithfulness and um, uh, conversions and discipling and church planting. Um, the last part on this section uh, uh, Dr. Packer talks. Well, before I press on to that, does anybody want to talk about that further, or um, do you understand the distinction that I'm making? Um, 
seeing anybody wanting to get the floor. Well, um, I will say that um, that that distinction that I've introduced here is uh, part of what in American Presbyterianism was known as the spirituality of the church. And I think it's one of the great insights of the American Presbyterian Church, at least in its orthodox form, uh, to realize that the church is a spiritual institution with a spiritual mission, but the Christians who are members of that spiritual institution and have that spiritual mission in the church nevertheless have other callings and responsibilities in the community more generally, and that's where the, the points that Dr. Packer makes are very, very important. Well, finally, then, we have uh, um, reference to the Gentile mission um, that Jesus acknowledged was coming, but in this worldly ministry, that wasn't exactly his mission per se. He came, as he put it, for the lost sheep of Israel. Nevertheless, what he would do with respect to those lost sheep uh, would be of worldwide significance, and thus... Uh, one of the great apostles was, in fact, designated as the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, and although he followed the pattern of Jew first and then Gentile, nevertheless, his mission was overwhelmingly a Gentile mission. Uh, Dr. Packer notes that um, the Christian Jews are free from the ceremonial law. Um, and, in fact, uh, I would say they're not only free from the ceremonial law, but they shouldn't comply with the ceremonial law. Um, for example, to be circumcised as a religious rite, that I think would actually be disobedience. It would be assault on Christ himself. Christ kept the law for everybody. His circumcision is the last circumcision as a religious rite, um, except for the peculiarity of that transitional time in the first century. So I don't think Dr. Packer is saying uh, that it's the way some Christian Jews have seemed to want to incorporate all of the, or many of the elements of uh, religious life um, rooted in the Old Testament. But he says, and here I think he's quite sound, they are free to follow Jewish customs expressing their ethnic culture, and that's perfectly appropriate. Uh, the, uh, a Jew doesn't have to become a Gentile in order to become a Christian, just in the same way that a Gentile doesn't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Excuse me. Um, so... Uh, I will say that I, I'm not sure I understand at all the, the last sentence in that section, uh, the long-standing expectation that Jewish Christians will leave behind their Jewish identity rather than rejoice in being fulfilled Jews as a cultural prejudice with no biblical basis. I, I'm not sure what that's referring to or even entirely clear on what it means, but I'm sure Dr. Packer has some very important point to make there, but I didn't quite get it myself. All right, any questions on mission? All right. Uh, then we turn to spiritual gifts. The, um, ah, all right. Steve. Um, I agree 
uh, with all that you said, and I appreciate your making the distinction between the church's mission and calling and uh, the individual believer's mission and calling. Um, do you think it's appropriate uh, in any, to any extent for, I think I know the answer, but I, is it appropriate in any extent for the church per se to encourage believers in their actions of general benevolence? For example, hey, some of the uh, brothers and sisters are going down to the uh, the soup kitchen on Saturday. Uh, we encourage you to go kind of thing. Announcement and funding soup kitchen money. Uh, or is there, uh, in your view, a, um, is there more to be a strict separation between what the church is doing in terms of mission and what the individual believers in the congregation are doing? Uh, am, I, am I clear enough? Yes, yes. I, I would okay. be on the stricter side of that, um, especially with respect to funding, but even with respect to um, it would be perfectly appropriate for a believer in a given congregation to get together with others who had like mind and said, let's all go this, do this together. Um, but the, um, the uh, let's start with uh, what I think would probably be uh, <laughs> Everybody would think it was right that uh, we shouldn't have an announcement to uh, uh, get together for the Republican Club. Um, the um, if there are Republicans in the congregation who want to have a club and so on, that's perfectly fine. But that isn't uh, to be. Let me back up a step. Uh, um, People's people's attention is extraordinarily valuable, and we know that today better than ever. Um, I think it was true 40 years ago when I first argued these points, but now we know how attention is monetized. Anything to get you to look at uh, uh, something to click on on the screen, um, advertisement on television, on the side of the road, anything is worth lots of money. And um, the church isn't about, um, when, when the church calls God's people together, they have a right to call their attention to the things that the church is about and not to use their communications, their meetings, as a vehicle for attention-getting for other efforts. Mm. That would be my view of it. And uh, as, I, as I say, personally and privately, for folk to do that would uh, be wonderful. But I, I don't think... At New Hope, I can't remember where in the... Uh, uh, the session's manual, but we we have some kind of a statement where we have tried to say that the only things that would be brought uh, to public attention at church-sponsored events would be things that have been endorsed by 
the session or um, uh, the Presbyterian, that sort of thing. Yep, uh, very good. I like the way that you explain that. I like your uh, use of that, you know, kind of marketing slash monetization connection. Uh, yeah, I think we've got to be careful in these things. So thank you. All right. Uh, Kate. And this is kind of a related question, but from the pulpit, can you talk about moral issues that are of the day? Like, for instance, suppose we were living during the time of the Holocaust. Could you preach against um, what was going on? Um, the um, You could preach any time that murder is against God's law and murder shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, but in a given political situation, look, in every moral argument, there's the moral principle and then there's the factual assessment as to what is taking place and then a rational conclusion drawn from the principle and the uh, understanding of uh, the facts of what the facts are to the conclusion of what your duty is. And uh, because of that, um, uh, so for example, the church can perfectly well preach that um, unborn life is uh, we have the obligation to nurture it and, and not to destroy it, and that's to uh, unwarrantedly take a life. Um, but the further step to say, and therefore, you must, if you're a Christian, uh, only vote for people who are against abortion. Or, you, if you're a Christian, you have to be in favor of a constitutional amendment on abortion. Or, if you're a Christian, you need to... Uh, be in favor of packing the Supreme Court with uh, anti-abortion jurists. Um, or, uh, which might be more constitutionally sound, <laughs> uh, you've got to be in favor of the whole matter being taken out of the federal system and put back in the states where it belongs <laughs> in this area of the law. Um, that you couldn't preach because... The pastor's no more competent than anybody else in the congregation to assess the factual matter there, and he certainly doesn't have a right to do it for others, to insist as the word of God what their duty is. Does that, do you see what I'm trying to say there? I think so. Thank you. For example, there was a fellow years ago when I was much younger, and he decided he was going to write a, a book about Christians and public life. And uh, one reviewer, it was one of the most devastating reviews I've ever seen in a Christian magazine. Uh, the reviewer said, uh, this fellow is a man for whom lack of knowledge on the subject is no impediment to writing a book about it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> But it was well said. <laughs> and in the back of the book, he had a, a, a list of things that would be 
the Christian position on public issues. Whether there should be a Department of Education, no. Whether there should be uh, an abandonment of the Panama Canal Treaty, no. Um, the <laughs> now somebody has the obligation to figure out what's right and wrong and all of that. But um, those are not decisions that's come from the pulpit. They shouldn't even come from that man. He wasn't competent to know the incredible complexity of all, all of those things. Any other thoughts on that, or is that satisfactory, Kate? Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, anything else on uh, mission? I mean, uh, yeah, we're starting into spiritual gifts. Um, spiritual gifts are, uh, of course, a subject that uh, you'd think would be uh, wonderful and <laughs> everybody would love to talk about it. It's probably one of the most controversial things that uh, belongs to the New Testament. Um, but Dr. Packer na navigates his way through this, I think, pretty faithfully. Um, he starts out by noticing that the church is formed such that there are some folk who have formal and official responsibilities with respect to the ministry of the church, but that every member has a role to play in the life of the church, and that uh, the uh, believers are gifted uh, in these ways by God to be um, uh, faithful in taking their part. Um, Dr. Packer notes nicely that um, uh, the elders have a role not in saying what believers should do uh, with respect to their voluntary efforts and use of their gifts, but that uh, they have a role to, um, in the two great verses for Presbyterian polity, 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 26. Um, it all uh, has to be for edification. And uh, the verse 40, uh, that it has to be done in a way that's decent and in an orderly way. It isn't chaotic. Um, and that flows from, if nothing other, then it's the body. Uh, and the body is given direction from the head, Christ, and then uh, uh, the body acts in an orderly way um, to affect what needs to be done. Um, the word gift, um, Dr. Packer notes, is not used that often. Um, it is used in Ephesians 4, and there the idea is of Christ giving the church uh, the ministries of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor, teacher. And uh, this is Christ bestowing these gifts upon his people as they're making their way heavenward to be a help to them on that great journey. Uh, but he also uses uh, the word uh, charismata, uh, which means manifestations of grace, and uh, another word which has to do with demonstrations of energy of the Spirit of God. Now here on page 227, first full paragraph, here's one of the great understatements of uh, uh, 
concise theology. Amid many obscurities and debated questions regarding New Testament charismata, three certainties stand out. And there are many obscurities and debated questions, but I think Dr. Packard nicely identifies the things that we all ought to be able to see and understand. First, that a spiritual gift is an ability in some way to communicate Christ. Uh, there to be to build up uh, believers, and um, the uh, and the God has given us those abilities. Second, that um, there are uh, speaking gifts, and there are uh, gifts of practical help helpfulness, and He identifies uh, these two types of gifts in Romans twelve and. You see there that some are speaking sorts and others are uh, the practical help sorts. And that um, he nicely insists that there's no thought of a superiority of one gift over another. Um, the um, All of equal dignity before the Lord, the only question is, are we being good stewards of our gifts? And then the third point is that no Christian is um, uh, found to be giftless altogether. And that's the teaching of, um, of uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, that um, is lovely there. That uh, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit of God for the common good. Um, and that's the image of the different parts of the body uh, uh, building itself up in love. All right, gifts. Uh, I don't uh, intend to uh, delve further into that subject this evening, but if somebody wants to go a, a little deeper or has questions further, I'm happy to take a moment to uh, um, get to that because I do have we have a good bit to talk about with respect to marriage. So any questions or comments with respect to gifts? I have a question about that Ephesians 4 passage. Yes. Um, so he quotes or paraphrases Psalm 68 when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Um, should we read that as he's taking gifts from these spiritual captives and then distributing it to his people? Or is that supposed to be connected like that? Um, I think Paul is using that um, passage in the psalm. The gifts are given to uh, the conqueror. Um, Paul makes reference to that, but he switches it around. And I, I think that that's perfectly fair. He's showing that here's a conqueror who has such largesse that instead of him being the recipient of gifts... That in fact he's pouring out gifts uh, for um, those who he's conquered. Okay. Does that make so sense? He, it, who is the who are the who is he conquering in this context? Is it the the Christians that he's called to himself? Yes. Conquered them. That's right. Uh, he's he's leading the captives uh, heavenward, and for that journey, instead of in the Old Testament setting, the captives giving gifts to the conqueror 
-hmm. Here the conqueror is making provision for the captives to make their way heavenward. And the the provision is particularly the provision of uh, um, teaching and governing um, people to bring them into conformity with the image of Christ. Striking image. Yes. I, I like it. Yes, it certainly is. It's quite striking. Any other questions or comments on uh, gifts? All right, I'm not seeing anybody want to get to get the floor. So um, let's turn from there. Uh, I will say that uh, the um, and just as a coda that um, we've talked about already, and I'll just remind you, there there were gifts given, uh, usually referred to extraordinary gifts, um, that uh, were identifying marks of those who had uh, special offices in the church. And those gifts, I think, have been withdrawn from the church entirely uh, because those offices have ended. Offices related to special revelation and the founding government of the church. And once that was accomplished, then uh, the um, um, power of those gifts continues in the church through the scriptures and there aren't any scripture givers any longer. And that point is very, very, very important to, to protect. Uh, a church which abandons that principle. And in fact, um, it continues to be the case that, uh, I don't know whether you saw the extraordinary uh, piece in the New York Times last week, but um, I, you know there are all kinds of Christians who are prophesying about our political circumstances and very, very prominent and uh, very wealthy and uh, populated ministries uh, where the prophets were wrong. And uh, they went down and showed all of this. And then, you know, as always in history, some people double down. They try and interpret it in some new way. And But the one fellow, I can't remember his name, um, uh, repented said he was wrong and that he shouldn't have done that. And he's getting death threats from Christians. Um, so that world is a fearful world where um, our God-given minds are not used to understand and apply the once-for-all given word as the only rule of faith and practice for our lives. Um, uh, and the other does enormous harm, both in the culture more generally and uh, certainly in the church. All right, um, on to marriage. The um, uh, merit, matrimony is meant to be a permanent covenant relationship. So, uh, a definition in the first paragraph, marriage is an exclusive relationship in which a man and a woman commit themselves to each other in covenant for life on the basis of this solemn vow, become one flesh physically, and cites the relevant passages there. The next paragraph takes up the purpose of marriage, and um, the, the 
the purpose uh, is drawn from the Westminster Confession, chapter 24, section 2, grounded in the text you see there, and there are four purposes identified. Uh, the, the mutual help of husband and wife, the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, the uh, increase the church with a holy seed, uh, and for chastity, uh, the older language pre- preventing uncleanness, uh, four elements. Um, I typically identify a fifth element, and that is for the government and development of the earth. Um, Dr. Packer uh, believes that, uh, but he takes that up under family, and so we'll get to that when we get to family. Um, But uh, just for completeness sake, I think there's a fivefold purpose um, to identify, uh, and um, and that this is God's ideal for marriage. Um, and the uh, um, and I want to pause here and just note his, that there's a very powerful and important element to marriage that's redemptive historical. This purpose in marriage is given at creation to the first couple, and it belongs to marriage in and of itself. They don't invent these goals. God gives them these goals and purposes, and they're to faithfully pursue them. So that uh, our modern view is that you you can sort of make up what you want marriage to be as you go along, and because of that, because you're the maker, you you talk about my marriage. But in, in some ways, that's entirely inappropriate, Um, because when we marry, we participate in something much, much larger than ourselves. And we're given the privilege to participate in something that's God's. And by understanding his will with respect to it, then we learn to faithfully order our lives. Now, as a creation ordinance, this purpose abides as long as the created order is maintained. Um... When Christ comes again, there'll be a a slight change to that. But this abides. Um, And so every marriage in this age ought to be pursuing those five points. But of course, once the fall comes, this purpose takes on a new significance altogether because marriage is uh, a central focus of the threat of the fall and sinfulness. And I I, want to just take a a moment on this. Um, Calvin has the most remarkable comment in his commentary on Genesis at 2.18. Here are his words. He says, God ordains the conjugal life of man, that is marriage. God ordains marriage, not for our destruction, but for our salvation. Now, I think that's one of the most remarkable sentences that Calvin has ever written. Um, First of all, he feels, when he thinks about marriage, now he's looking at it uh, as given by God, this creation ordinance, but he feels obliged to say that marriage wasn't given for our destruction. 
And the reason why he feels that way is because marriage can seem like it was given for our instruction. Once sin assaults all five of those purposes and continually throughout this life, marriage can be a very difficult thing. And Calvin's very realistic. And he says, but he says, you understand that this is hard, not because God intends to destroy us, but because it's part of the battle against sin. It's not for our destruction. But then even more shockingly, he says, but it's for our salvation. So is it justification by marriage alone or something like that? What on earth does he mean for our salvation? Well, here's the answer. Because God preserves marriage, his promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent is fulfilled. Because God won't abandon marriage to sinfulness, but generation after generation preserves it as an institution that follows his ordinance, seeking his purposes in it, the salvation of the world comes. If Adam and Eve had repudiated marriage, if Eve had repudiated um, the um, uh, calling to bear children and they together to raise them in the Lord, if they'd have repudiated that, there'd have been no salvation at all. But because they didn't, and generation after generation after generation they didn't, uh, there came to be finally the seed of the woman who would have victory over the seed of the serpent. So you see that there's a tremendous historical redemptive uh, element uh, that is quite critical to marriage. And uh, it it really, um, uh, if we neglect that, we're neglecting one of the most important things about marriage. Marriage is for all mankind. But it's God's will that believers should only marry in the Lord. And uh, the, um, if you're interested on that point, I've written a fairly elaborate paper on the subject I'll be glad to send out. So if anybody would like it, just email me and I'll, I'll pass it along. But let me pause there and see if there are any questions about uh, the fivefold purpose or the point I wanted to add about marriage and redemptive history. No? All right. Uh, Then uh, let's uh, press on. Um, It's because of what I've just said about marriage and redemptive history that Paul then can use Christ's relationship with the church to illustrate what uh, Christian marriage ought to be. Um, and he talks about how there are, is a role relationship in husband and wife, among husband and wife, that, that the Lord has appointed. Um, the husband called to be the leader of the family and the protector of his wife. The wife's calling uh, to accept her husband in that role. Um, this doesn't mean the wife is an inferior, and, and it needs to be said as well, it doesn't mean that the husband is superior. Uh, every husband and wife will have a, a, a different complex of gifts and abilities. Um, that They all bear God's image, 
and thus have equal dignity and value, but they have a role relationship which God has appointed for the good of the family. Um, the, uh, he is, the husband is the leader, not for his own sake, but for the family's sake, not so that his will can be exercised, but he has the obligation to find the good for the whole. Um, the, uh, the wife has uh, all the calling of Christian discipleship. She is not uh, a servant of the husband or uh, at his beck and call with respect to everything. Uh, her conscience is the same as his. She can't do anything that would go against her conscience. I do think it's interesting. I'll just uh, um, I'll leave the point here. It's interesting that Paul says in that passage, uh, as a principal point, husbands are to love their wives, and wives are to uh, respect their husbands. And that can seem perplexing. Uh, certainly Paul doesn't mean that the wife shouldn't love her husband, and certainly that the husband shouldn't respect his wife. Why the difference in the instruction? Well, here's my supposition on the matter. He's picking out the thing that will be most needful to overcome the potential for sin. What's the potential for sin in the husband's role? To use his role for himself, selfishly. And so he needs to be told, this is out of love for your wife, that you are prepared to sacrifice yourself and uh, in caring for her good. That's preeminent. And on the other hand, what's the possibility for sin most likely for the wife? Well, she would say, this fellow's not worthy of my support and subordination. Uh, he, he doesn't make all the right decisions. Uh, it, it would be to disrespect him. But in so doing, she would disrespect the office appointed by God. And so Paul wanted to say to her that she needed to be to work at regarding it as an office from God and looking to God and his providence to bless that office. Um, let me stop there and see if you have any. Oh, we're on the home stretch, so I better pick up the pace. Anybody a question you're just dying to get in? All right, I don't see any. Uh, question of divorce. Uh, this um, is uh, a little bit difficult um, in that uh, the opening words, God hates divorce, uh, I don't think there's any question about the truth of that, but uh, Dr. Packer cites Malachi 2.16. And this may be one of the most uh, difficult passages in the whole of the Bible, in part because the state of the text is not in great repair. The phrase, God hates divorce, is from the King James translation, and it is in others, but it's a, it's a more ancient translation. But if you look up uh, in the ESV, uh, for example, the whole passage reads this way. Remember, Malachi is uh, rebuking Israel because of their failures, uh, and it begins by a complaint from them. Look, we're doing all the uh, right uh, things in sacrifice, and yet God isn't regarding our sacrifice. And Malachi over and again says, well, it's because 
Otherwise, you're not living faithfully. And so, uh, in Malachi 2.14, um, uh, here's their question. Why doesn't, uh, isn't God blessing us because of our sacrifices? And Malachi said, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Now, uh, here's the verse 16 that Dr. Packer's citing. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Where's God's hate's divorce in that verse? It's gone. The margin uh, has this note that it might be translated, the Lord your God, the Lord, the God of Israel, says he hates divorce and him who covers himself with violence. They've abandoned that translation because it just doesn't really work with respect to the text. Every interpretation of this text bears some element of uh, interpretation uh, because it's so difficult. But uh, it seems to be the uniform consensus now that what I just read to you uh, has been discarded and uh, the, the, the other is to be preferred. Well, so the point is, nevertheless, that God uh, is incensed with Israel uh, because of their covenant, uh, lack of covenant faithfulness. And particularly, remember the point of bringing forth a godly seed, particularly because these husbands are not, uh, not caring for their wives. What God wanted was children who'd be raised to believe wasn't coming to pass. Um, at the time of Jesus, uh, uh, divorce for almost a, any reason was widely accepted. And you have to understand that as the context for the teaching of Jesus on the matter. Uh, but in general, he said, his texts uh, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, uh, his point is that marital unfaithfulness destroys the marriage covenant and warrants divorce though reconciliation would be prefer- preferable, but that anyone who divorces for any lesser reason becomes guilty of adultery. Um, and uh, Dr. Packer thinks that um, uh, there's much more to say about this, and he has some interesting points about uh, pastoral care. Uh, but in any case, um, uh there is a legitimate divorce where the marriage covenant has been violated uh, by unfaithfulness. Um, there's a, an additional element that uh, uh, Dr. Packer brings up from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.15, and that's the idea of divorce from desertion. Um, Paul uh, has been noticing that in the New Testament period, there were... Uh, uh, sometimes a husband or a wife who's converted and the wife was not. Now, 
It would have never been right to contract those marriages at that time. So the point is, one must have been converted as they were married. And Paul once has such a high regard for marriage that although you couldn't deliberately contract that marriage, if you were a disciple, if you were in one, if you, if possible, it should be preserved. And uh, therefore, if they're willing to remain, uh, you should remain and be a good spouse. And with the hope that it might be the occasion of the conversion of your spouse. But on the other hand, Paul says that uh, if the unbelieving partner uh, wants to leave, uh, you're not bound. And uh, generally speaking, the Reformed have thought that uh, meant that uh, there was a legitimate divorce. There has been a difference of opinion whether uh, it allowed for the right of remarriage. But the Westminster Confession uh, in chapter uh, 24 in sections 5 and 6 affirms what is the mainstream of Reformed theology, and that is uh, Jesus' standard uh, adultery after marriage. Uh, um, it's lawful to have a divorce. Um, and also that uh, a, a willful, willful, willful desertion that can be in no way remedied by the church or the civil magistrate also dissolves the bond of marriage. Um, and uh, so if you're not bound, then, of course, uh, you can remarry uh, on that interpretation. Well, let me stop there. Um, thank you for your patience uh, for me to zoom along and uh, get through the material we need to get through. But I certainly have the time. If you're interested to ask questions or raise questions about any of what we've covered. Dave, can I ask about abandonment? Yes, uh-huh. Uh, is it is it the case? It's, I, I feel like in modern day, you hear about abandonment as a cause for divorce, not necessarily when there's an unbelieving partner, but a marriage is just dissolving and one spouse walks out or something. Um, and then the question I always had to extend maybe on a false premise is you hear about emotional abandonment. Someone hasn't really left, but they've sort of checked out of the marriage and that's a form of abandonment. Right. Is there something to do that? Is that biblical or is that a modern day cover for? Yeah. Two, two great questions, Chris. Uh, the, the first is a little bit complicated. Um, you're right that Paul is only granting this with respect to an unbeliever. And for example, uh, John Murray, uh, one of the great Reformed theologians and adherents to the Westminster Standards thought the standards were wrong in saying in general that uh, abandonment dissolved the marriage. Um, but I think, uh, if I tremble to say this, that John Murray uh, was not paying close enough attention to what I think the casuistry of the standards is here. Remember, it says... Uh, Willful desertion, as can no way be remedied by church or civil magistrate, cause sufficient for dissolving. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that if, if a person who is a professed Christian abandoned the marriage, the church would pursue discipline. And if 
the man was guilty in what he was doing and would not repent, he would finally no way be remedied, be excommunicated. And so he would be in the character of an unbeliever fitting the standard that Paul sets up. I think that's what's in their mind. And that's the point of that phrase, that it, it must be, a, a, it turns into a church discipline proceeding. Mm -hmm. And if the man unrepentantly resists, then uh, the wife is properly not longer any, uh, no, no longer bound to him. So that's the way I'd answer the first one. And that's why, generally speaking, although churches aren't as diligent as they should be, uh, but generally speaking, abandonment is a ground uh, for anyone um, because of that casuistry. The second point is uh, that um, if you have abandonment as a ground, is it possible to conceive of constructive abandonment? That is where a person, for example, may continue to live in the same house, but for all intents and purposes, abandon the marriage. An emo emotional sustaining, financial sustaining, uh, any uh, love and care, um, any care for the children, and so on. Is that possible? And I think most Reformed folk have answered yes, that is possible. Mm -hmm. um, that you can be present in some way, physically, but have abandoned in essence, all of the parts of the responsibility. And again, what would a wife or a husband do in that case? Well, they go to the church and say, this fellow's not fulfilling his obligations. And the church would try patiently and diligently to say, you must. And if he finally refused to, he'd be excommunicated. And uh, therefore, um, and in this case, there'd be a civil proceeding too. He couldn't just continue to, live in the house, the courts would force them to, uh, you know, divide up property and so on. There's no, there's no doubt, but divorce is uh, criminally uh, available in our culture today, in my judgment. Um, but on the other hand, I, I do think that uh, divorce is a critical part of Christian marriage doctrine in a fallen world. That's very helpful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other uh, questions or comments um, on any of this? Well, thank you again uh, all for coming. Um, we go from here next time to family, the, the world, and the state. And as I say, if you haven't read the family yet, you'll see that what I was talking about is a fifth purpose for marriage is articulated there and we'll have a great discussion of that um, but uh, let me conclude with prayer Father how wonderful is the light that comes from your word how faithful your servant uh, J.I. Packer to help us to see that light and to, in uh, such uh, careful and skilled words communicate to us and we pray that we would profit for the from the time we've spent tonight and learn to uh, walk in greater faithfulness with respect uh, to our calling, uh, our part with respect to the great mission of the church, um, our obligation to one another to be uh, 
to help to be a part of the discipline of the church, uh, certainly in the broadest sense and when we have some particular obligation in its judicial character. And we thank you for marriage and the extraordinary good that it is and that you've preserved it in a fallen world where it might and is often a source of misery in people's lives that uh, nevertheless, by your powerful grace, you sustain that institution even among sinners and uh, with the intention of doing great good for uh, the cause of Christ. And we pray that that would ever be in Jesus' name. Amen.